is going to change everything and something's going to work. Okay, now we're back to class again. That sounds good. All righty. Okay. Now, the devil only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Therefore, sin is always damaging. The extent of the damage varies. Obviously, the extent of the damage with murder is different, generally speaking, than the, than the extent of the damage when people lie. But believe it or not, there's always loss on some level. Now, it's not sin to be tempted. So when you have bad thoughts or thoughts to do something, don't go thinking, oh, I'm such a terrible person. How could I think about stealing Abby's wallet? How could I think such a thought? Well, it's not you. It's temptation thrown at you. It's not sin to be tempted. It's sin to act on it. It's sin when we start to believe the lie that's pitched to us. And the result when we sin is not the seeming good that we thought we were going to get. It's death in one way, shape, or form. Temptation always starts with a thought. That's where temptation always starts, with a thought. A thought that's thrown your way. And there are three sources of these tempting thoughts. They are the world, the flesh, and the devil himself and his evil spirits. These are the three ways that the adversary seeks to introduce thoughts into your mind to see if you'll act on them. This is identified in Ephesians chapter 2. Look at this here. Uh, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. How did you walk? According to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil and his spirits. Among whom we all... We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. So what are these three? What is the world? How does the world throw tempting thoughts at you? Well, the devil is called the god of this world, the god of this age. And he has set up the systems of this world to promote his agenda. The world is used here in the Bible to describe the fallen world of human culture that is under Satan's control. On a practical level, most of the temptations and thoughts that you receive are through the systems of this world which are controlled by the adversary. That's the mold that we're getting pressed into from Romans 12 too. See, there are ideas that the world throws at you, ideas that adultery is all right, stealing is not bad in certain instances, Drunk's okay as long as you don't drive. Greed is good. All these are lies that the world throws at you through its leaders and its media. You could call this the cue ball effect. The ultimate source of these tempting thoughts is the devil. But it's not the devil at Linda or the devil at Nick. It's the devil throwing these thoughts out in the world. They bounce around till suddenly Susan picks one of them up. Says, oh, this is an interesting thought. Now, the flesh. The flesh refers to what we read in the first session as your old man, your old nature. It is the thinking patterns that you and I developed while we were still living independent of God before we came to Christ. The old man is who you were in Adam. The new man is who you are in Christ. And you have to learn the ways of the new man. You have to learn his ways. You know, I was thinking about this. We all, I think you're familiar, that we were transferred into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, right? 
Whose kingdom have we been in before that? The devil's kingdom, the one that he ran. And, you know, we don't understand how big a change this is. Let's say you were raised in North Korea, okay? You were raised in North Korea under that regime, and one day, presto, you were given a U.S. passport and brought to live in Aurora. Can you imagine the differences between having lived in North Korea and now living here in the Chicago suburbs? Huge. That's nothing compared to the difference you get between living in a kingdom controlled by the adversary and living in a kingdom that is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We were all born as natural men and women. Nobody is born as a Christian. You might have been born to Christian parents, many of us were, but you were not a Christian when you were born. You became a Christian by choice at some time later in your life. Some of us very young, some of us quite a bit older when we finally learned about Christ. Now, when you have a habit pattern that you've developed in your life and in your mind, that is a much more effective way for the devil to work at us than if he has to throw the idea at us. Because if it's just something I'm thinking in my own head, I approve of all my thoughts. Bob's thoughts are great, man. I always approve of my thoughts. And you know what? I never lose an argument with myself. So if the devil can get you to believe some lie, then he can control your actions. He doesn't have to be anywhere near you because you're going to live in accordance with what you believe. Everybody does. The power of your old nature was crucified with Christ. It doesn't own you anymore. Look at Romans 6.6. We know that our old self was crucified with him, Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You aren't a slave to sin anymore. You don't have to sin. Did you know that? And you know, we, as we, the more we get into God's word, the longer and longer periods of time you will go without living independent of God. There might have been a time in your life where you couldn't go eight minutes without living independent of God and sinning. Now you can go days, weeks. We just learn. The old nature was crucified with Christ. Sin is no longer your master. You don't try to reform the dead. You know what you do with the dead? You bury them. Sin still exists, right? But it's not legally your master anymore. You don't have to obey it. We now have the ability to live in accordance with God's word and his ways. Third way. So first we have the world. Then we have the flesh, which has been programmed by the world. Third, we have the devil and the evil spirits that work with him. Now, here's something that's important to remember, because the devil is a liar, right? The devil cannot read your mind, period. God can, devil can't. He does not know what you are thinking. But he does have the ability to introduce thoughts to your mind. Don't be surprised. I can introduce thoughts to your mind, hamburger. It's easy to introduce thoughts to people's minds. We do it all the time. The devil has been studying the human brain and how it operates for thousands of years. He's good at this. It says in the Gospels that Satan entered into Judas. It says in Acts that Satan filled the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira. In Chronicles, it says that Satan incited David to take a census in Israel. The devil routinely throws thoughts at you because he can't read your mind. But you know, I have 
a granddaughter. She's like a little over two. I can look at her, and I can't read her mind, but I can predict pretty well what she's going to do next because I'm observing her. So if you are a careful observer of a person's behavior, you can get a good idea of what they're thinking and planning. The devil is a careful observer. He knows if you are believing a certain lie that he has told you by how you act. Oh, wait, Ann bought that one. I can see what she's doing. So I'm just going to keep throwing that lie at her a lot. And then I found out that, that, oh, that lie doesn't work on Ron. Okay, I need a different one for him. And that's how he, he, he knows what, he doesn't know what you're thinking, but he observes what you do, which tells him what you are believing. So even though the devil cannot read your mind, he is a keen observer. He throws out lies, sees how you respond, and then he refines his attack. But we have seen that the devil is a defeated enemy. The only power he still has legitimately that he can still do is he can roar and he can lie. And that's what he does constantly because it's all he's got. We have nothing to fear from him. This is very different from the Old Testament and the Gospels. Before the cross, Satan was not a defeated enemy. He had no challenge to his authority. Jesus Christ was the first person who could say, and he did say, the prince of this world has no claim on me. You know what happened before that? 100% of humanity, the devil had a claim on them. What was that claim? They believed his lies. When you believe a lie, you empower the liar. Every human had empowered the adversary at some point in their life by believing lies that he threw at them. The only one who he had no claim over was Jesus Christ. And now, because sin has been crucified with Christ, he has no claim over you either. That's pretty good. So how are we going to deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil? Well, we stop conforming to this world. That's what it says in Romans 12, too. We reckon the old man dead. I don't have to, I'm not a slave to sin anymore. It's not my master. I don't have to listen to you. And we resist the devil. So temptation is man's oldest challenge, and it hasn't changed much. You're going to see it didn't change much between Adam and Jesus Christ. Thousands of years, same hogwash. We're going to look at this. How are we going to learn to resist the adversary and to resist the tempter? And you know... There are two contrasting records of temptation that are given to us in the Word of God. The first Adam, he failed. The last Adam is Jesus Christ, he overcame. And we're going to look at both of these sets of temptation, and you're going to see how to resist. You're going to see the kind of escape routes that God provides so that you don't get trapped. Look at Genesis chapter 3. This is the temptation of Adam, mostly temptation of Eve, Adam just went along like a bozo. Verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He was crafty. He said to the woman, You know something, did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, do you think the devil was looking for information so that he could obey God? I just want to know what God said. Did he actually say this? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, I go into this record in more depth in getting to know God better, but 
What happens here is Eve is conversing with the serpent. She's entertaining it, inviting him in for dinner and a movie. And then she doesn't say exactly what God said. And then she adds a whole new regulation. She says you're not even allowed to touch that tree. Did God say anything about touching the tree? No, he didn't say anything about touching the tree. Do you have things in your house that you can touch but it would be unwise to eat? Lots of things, right? I clean our sink with Comet. Not a good thing to eat. So having something, God said nothing about touching. So this woman invented, so the world's first religion was invented by a woman. Thou shalt not touch it. Okay, now everybody's mad at me. Okay. You know what Eve did? She was sloppy. She got sloppy with the Bible. She got sloppy with God's word. Christians today are doing the same thing. They're good sincere. Was, was Eve sincere? She wasn't evil at this point. She was still sinless. But she was sloppy. And you know where it got her? Dead. Christians do this today. A lot of Christians talk about God using them. Just use me, God. God never once speaks of using his people. You know who uses people? The devil. When you use someone, they're a tool. You want to be a tool for the devil? I don't. God doesn't use you. You voluntarily submit to him. You present yourselves as a living sacrifice. You make the choice. No matter how sincere you are, when you start using words and phrases that are different from God's, you're on a slippery slope. And people accuse me a lot of being nitpicky. That's okay. I've been called worse, by the way. When you consider what happened to Eve, I don't mind being nitpicky about the Scripture and really look at what did God actually say and what does it actually mean. We don't want to end up like Eve did. And you can't stop temptation from coming. Okay? There's no like cone of silence that you can put over your head and you don't get temptations anymore. But you're under no obligation to entertain it. Okay? Once you flirt with temptation, you're sunk. Once temptation gets your attention, it's only a matter of time before it gets you. When I recognize a tempting thought, I lead it captive, which you know what that means for me, what I do is I dismiss it. And then poof, it loses its power when you recognize what the devil is doing. It doesn't matter where the thought came from. If it comes from the world, your best friend, the devil himself, I don't care. When you recognize a thought that is contrary to God, you lead a captive. You say, nope, not that thought. Remember I told you to be the bouncer of your mind? You check IDs. Don't feel bad about temptation. When I recognize it, it just loses all its power. Now, the devil is playing Eve like a fish, dangling the bait in front of her. And you know what it means to set the hook on a fish? It means you know the fish is biting at you, and you yank up to set the hook so that you get the fish. So that it doesn't just nibble away at the bait and swim. You want to set the hook. The devil is about to set the hook with a very enticing offer to the devil. Very alluring bait. First, he says to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the big lie that everybody sees here is, you shall not surely die. That is a big lie. It is a direct contradiction of what God said. God said you will die, the devil said you won't. Big lie, easy to spot. 
not nearly as dangerous as the follow-up lie. The follow-up lie was slander against the nature and character of God. God is love. God is good. God always and only has your best interests at heart. The devil indicated that God didn't have your best interests at heart, that God was holding back from you, that you could actually be just like God, and he knows that, and he doesn't want you to be like him. What is this? It's slander against God. It's introducing doubts about God into Eve's mind. Adam and Eve misunderstood God because the devil had lied to them about God's nature. Many people today, Christians included, misunderstand God because they've been told lies about him. They believe that God kills people. Oh, God has another little angel in heaven. God does not turn dead humans into angels, okay? That ain't in the Bible. The devil is always throwing lies at people. And, of course, here's the the lie. You shall not surely die. You know what that lie is? Sin isn't damaging. It doesn't matter if you don't obey God. Nothing's going to happen. As a matter of fact, if you don't obey God, something good's going to happen. That's how he operates. He's played you like this. I guarantee he's played you like this. Because this is the only playbook he's got. Not because I'm so smart and I can identify it. It's the only playbook he's got. Lies. What is God's real motive in your life? God is love. What is God's motive for forbidding murder? Is that a selfish motive on his part? How about forbidding stealing or sex outside of the covenant of marriage or drunkenness or coveting or anything else you want to add in there? Why does God warn us about these things? Because he loves us. Not because he's mad at us. His motive is always love, but the devil lies to us about God. Where does the devil whisper in your ear that going about God's way isn't going to meet your need? You need to go about things another way. If you are secure in God's love for you, these kinds of temptations aren't going to bite. If she had really understood God's nature, she wouldn't have paid any attention to that temptation. Let's read in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. What do you mean make one wise? It's a tree that's going to make one dead. They're going to make you wise. Why did she think it was going to make her wise? She had been lied to and she believed the lie. So now she's acting in accordance with that lie. When I believe a lie, I act in accord because I always act in accordance with what I believe, period. Everybody does. You know, people say you have to live by faith. Everybody lives by faith. It's just that not all faith is in God. Most faith isn't in God. And when it's not, we get blindsided. But we can't escape temptation. Eve didn't, but we can. God is the one who's going to help you reject and escape from temptation. But we have to submit to him. We have to recognize, we have to recognize that God's way is best, period. I don't care how the devil wants to make it look for you, God's way is best. The devil made it look that God's way, which was don't eat of this tree, was bad. The devil lied to make Eve believe that. Look again at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 
No temptation has taken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, there is no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. That is a critical point to remember. Because one of the things the devil will throw at you is he'll try to isolate you. Your life is not different. Your life is unique, but we live in the same world, and we endure the same things that Jesus Christ himself endured. But the devil will try to get you to think, oh, I'm de- this, you know, you know, Ron, it works for you. I know, that, I know there's a God. I know it works for you, but, you know, my life is so hard. You don't know what I've gone through. People tell me that a lot. You don't know what I've gone through. You're right. I don't. But I don't need to because Jesus knows what you've gone through. And that's what counts. She was enticed by her desire. Remember James said we get enticed by desire? She was enticed by her desire and she ended up throwing away the best thing that God gave her. Now, let's take a look at what Jesus Christ did and how he endured temptation, how he escaped from temptation. We're going to start in Matthew 4, verse 3. This is right after he was baptized by John. And when he was baptized by John, God appeared in the shape of a dove and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus hears that, and then he goes off to fast and pray for 40 days, after which he is tempted. And in verse 3 it says, And the tempter came and said to him, If, if, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Because if you had fasted for 40 days, you think you might be hungry. I think so. If you are the Son of God. the de- what, what is his first MO? He's challenging Jesus' identity. If you are the Son of God. Last thing God says, this is my Son. My beloved Son. Now, notice the devil omitted the word beloved. If you be the beloved Son of God. No, 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 no. The devil did not want to be reminding Jesus that God loved him. He didn't want to be reminding you that God loves you either. The devil will challenge your identity also. Are you a son of God with power or someone who is just broken and sinful? No. Like Jesus, you are beloved of God. Now, the lie in this temptation, is it sinful to eat? No. Is it sinful to be hungry if you haven't eaten? No. What is the lie in this temptation? What is the devil trying to get Jesus to do? He's trying to get Jesus to get his needs met outside of God's will. It's nothing but a counterfeit. We have legitimate needs, such things as love, acceptance, security, significance. These are legitimate needs. Food is also a legitimate need. God has promised to meet those needs. Temptation will tell you it's better to get your needs met this way instead of God's way. Temptation, by the way, is most appealing to you. And if you'll think about it, you'll recognize this. Temptation is most appealing when hunger, fatigue, or loneliness are strong or when your mind has been dulled with alcohol or drugs. The devil has a lot of methods. One of his methods is to, is to push something good to the point that it becomes sinful. You know, eating is good, gluttony is bad. 
He often goes slowly so that we don't notice the trap. He does this with food, with drink, with sex, with amusements, countless other things. You know, to get away from God's will, you don't have to always sin. Distracting you will do the job just as well. It's not that he'd like to get you to do something sinful, but if he can't, just to get you to do something different. You know, I'm gonna, I think I'll read my Bible this way. Oh, no, I think I'll look at Facebook instead. Looking at Facebook isn't overtly sinful, but instead, as a substitute for reading the Bible, not a good choice. Many believers, and this is something you might, you'll talk to people, maybe you've encountered, they become distracted during teachings. They're hearing God's word and they become distracted. They're able to focus plenty fine on other things. But they start hearing God's word taught, and all of a sudden, a thousand different distracting thoughts come their way. Where do you think they are coming from? The devil just throwing thoughts at you, trying to jump up like a monkey to get you to look that way instead of this way. That can be taken care of like that. This is interesting. The devil is subtle in his temptations. You notice he didn't come to Jesus and said, Jesus, God won't take care of you. I've been too blunt. The devil doesn't like to be blunt. Because then it's, it's too easy to expose him. He likes to be subtle. He disguises his temptation to make it look innocent and logical. Hey, you know, if you're hungry, I know you're hungry. You've got to be hungry. Why don't you just make the... You're, if you're the son of God, just turn these into bread. Then you can eat. Because you're hungry. Sounds reasonable. Right? This isn't godly. The devil is trying to get Jesus to live independent of God. How's he going to respond? Let's see, verse 4. But he, Jesus, answered, it is written. He immediately references the scriptures. Not human reason. Divine reason. And the scriptures say, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And you know what some of those words that came out of God's mouth were? He would take care of the Messiah. So if God says he's going to take care of the Messiah, and Jesus is the Messiah... Does Jesus have anything to worry about? No. Jesus defeats the lie with the truth of God's word. He doesn't talk to the serpent the way Eve did. He refutes the serpent's lie with God's truth. And he does it accurately. Unlike Eve, who added a whole new commandment, kind of soft-pedaled the other side, Jesus quotes it straight. But if you're going to do this, you need to know the truth. Most Christians even don't know enough truth to refute the lies. Look at verse 5. The devil is coming back with another temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city, to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, there again he is, hitting at the identity. You know, you are not the sum total of your life experiences. The world will tell you that. Oh, can any good thing come out of Aurora? They said this about Jesus. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? You going to buy that? Or you're a son or daughter of God? I'll tell you what came out of Nazareth, the Messiah. So I guess something good can come out of Nazareth. Some of you live in Aurora. Something good can come out of Aurora, too. That's a lie. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Really? What kind of a temptation is this? Here we are in the pinnacle. Just 
throw yourself down, Jesus. So Jesus is going to supposed to commit suicide. No, 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 no. That's not where the temptation is going. Let's keep reading. For it is written. Who's saying it is written now? The devil. He's saying it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil, if you'll notice, adapts quickly. Very quickly. He comes back with the word of God. And you know what? He accurately quoted it. That is what it says in Psalm 91. But he distorts its meaning. This temptation contained a challenge to the truth. Will God bear you up? He says he's got it. Will he bear you up? Let's just prove it. Jump off this temple right now. You know what would happen if Jesus had jumped off the temple? No cross. No salvation. He would have died. Again, Christ countered the lie. He countered the temptation with truth. That's the only way to beat temptation. But do you know what is written? Do you know it? You know, the devil could come to you quoting, misquoting a scripture, and you might, well, I guess that's what the Bible says. Uh, okay. The essence of this lie was to tempt the Lord. What that means is that you are going to say, okay, God, I don't really know. Are, are you really going to do what you said you're going to do? That's not faith. You might not have been brought to the pinnacle of the temple, but I'm pretty sure this has been used on you as well. I've seen the devil sell faulty logic to Christians time and time again, often wrapped in scriptures. You know, I need this. I deserve this. God wants me to be So I'm going to have this. You know, I'm not happy in my marriage, but God wants me to be happy. He wants me to be blessed. Oh, I'll just commit adultery. That's okay because God wants me blessed. Oh, you don't th- you think I'm making this stuff up? You do counseling like I do. You hear all kinds of nonsense like that. But then when you tell it, wait, that's not, and poof. But the devil sells faulty logic to people all the time. The essence of this was to tempt the Lord. You know, there is not, if people sometimes have this idea that God is under some sort of obligation to their desires, okay? Oh, because he said I can live the more abundant life, so I'm going to decide what that means. It doesn't work that way. Let God be God. There is not a clever way for you to compose a prayer that obligates God to do what you want. Prayer is to get us in alignment with what he wants. God has promised to meet your needs. He has, but according to his perfect will. And if we, if we adjust our lives to his will, we're going to see our needs met. Stop seeking your will and seek God's will. And many times we seek our will not because we want to reject God, but because we get spooked. We get afraid. It doesn't seem like it's working. So we get spooked. Look at the next one, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came 
and were ministering to him. See, here's the lie. You know what the lie was in this temptation? You can skip the cross, Jesus. I will make you the Lord of the earth, no cross. All you got to do is worship me. Jesus correctly recognized that this was not about him. It wasn't about him being the ruler of this world. It was about the devil getting worship, which is what he's always wanted. Jesus passed the test. He countered the lie with the truth. All of these temptations were presented as shortcuts to something that God had already promised to give Jesus. They were not shortcuts. They were detours. You know the difference between a detour and a shortcut? Big difference. Like if you're driving along and you see a sign that says detour, you know what you do? Oh, no. Because you know it's going to take longer to get there with a detour. The only thing the devil offers are detours. He does not offer shortcuts. God offers the only direct route to fulfillment, to joy, to peace. And that's his word and his will. Don't buy these things. You know, it's really interesting. Jesus Christ, and this is where I want to get like Christ. Jesus Christ did not resist temptation the way most people do. See, with most people, they get this temptation. It's like, oh, I I really want that, but I shouldn't really do that. We still have this, like, tug. You know, I still, Jesus didn't resist temptation like that. Things that were apart from God's will were just not attractive to him. They were not attractive to him. Jesus rejected the lie that temptation could ever meet his needs the way obeying God could. It was not attractive to him in the same way temptation is often attractive to us. I want to get like Christ. I want to be like Christ so much that the things that the devil tries to tempt me with are just not attractive. The devil is a counterfeiter, by the way. He is in no way original. He disguises his lies to make them look appealing. Everything that the devil offers us falls far short of what God would freely give us. And Jesus Christ shows this in the examples of his temptations. Jesus could have made bread or he could have enjoyed being ministered to by angels. Which would you like? Rock bread or angels? Jesus could have impressed the crowds by jumping off the temple, or he could have been exalted to God's right hand. Who would you rather have exalt you? Jesus could have ruled the world for a season if he had worshipped the devil, or he could be king of kings for eternity. When you look at it like this, what the devil was offering was so far short of what God was offering. It's the same in your life. Don't settle for the devil's lies. Sin never delivers on its promises. It is always less than what God would want for you. So let's take a 10-minute break, okay? It's available because you've given me your word. So with praise in my mouth, I put my heart in your hands. Life far greater than I could have planned. So wake me up early, I want to be. 
This ain't a whisper 
Anthony to get this music playing. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. All right, I was all right. This so is... burdened down by the weight of the world. Felt like a lost little girl. But in your word, you said to me, be anxious for nothing. So I Okay, we're back from break. We're still looking at temptation, by the way. And temptation is an encouragement to sin. Okay? That's what temptation is. But what is sin? What does the word sin mean? Everybody knows this word. We've all heard it. But what does that word sin actually mean? And the Greek word behind our English word sin means to miss the mark. How's that for a definition? Sin is missing the mark. Well, whose mark? God's mark. Missing the mark of God's word. On a practical level, sin is going against what God says and living your life independent of God. This can be done either purposefully or ignorantly. I lived a lot of my life independent of God out of complete ignorance for many, many years. You know what? My ignorance protected me from nothing. Ignorance doesn't help. We all have needs in life, right? God has promised to meet those needs. The devil offers another option. The option being that you can be fulfilled outside the word of God. The answer is to lead captive every thought to Christ. Let me see where we are. Okay, I think that's right. Look at Hebrews 2.18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he, Jesus, is able to help those who are tempted. Remember God says he's going to give us an escape route? Jesus says he's going to help. One of the greatest ways he helps is the example that he left. I'd like to look at four keys from God's word on how to reject temptation. And first, we need to learn God's word so that we can recognize temptation. Jesus Christ recognized that the devil was offering him something other than God's will. Why would he know that? Because he knew God's will. Do you really believe, by the way, that God's word is true? If you're going to have to, if you're going to overcome temptation, you need to recognize that. The greatest escape route that God ever provides against temptation is his word. That's what Jesus Christ used. It is written, it is written, it is written. Look at Psalm 19.11. It says, moreover, by them, by the laws of God, is your servant warned. God's word will warn you of the dangers in life. And in keeping them, there is great misery. No, great reward. Now, people, the devil has made it very clear in his propaganda that God is a killjoy. And God is just out here to restrain your fun in life. It's a lie. Look what it says. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Law isn't sin. Far from it. Let's see what the law actually is. I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, do not covet. See, the law was not the problem in the Old Testament. The law was not the problem. The law was good and perfect. But all the law could ever do is show you 
what was wrong. The problem is the law was only ever a diagnostic tool. It showed you the problem. It didn't solve the problem of sin. It showed it to you. The problem of sin was solved in Christ. Just like an x-ray machine. If you break your leg and they take an x-ray, does the x-ray machine heal your leg? No, the x-ray machine is for diagnosis. It shows, oh, your leg is broken. But then we need to take, then a doctor needs to set your leg. So the law was only ever diagnostic in its purposes. It showed you God's will. In fact, all the law is, the, the only two laws you really need to know are love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two laws hang all the law and the prophets. That's what Jesus Christ said. So everything in the Old Testament other than love God and love your neighbor is just a way that God is fleshing out and defining what love God and love your neighbor looks like. You know, loving your neighbor, oh, by the way, that means you don't lie to him. That's part of loving your neighbor. Just in case you didn't miss this, you don't kill him either. That's also, you know, loving your neighbor is not killing him. God had to spell all this stuff out. You need to recognize temptation when it comes calling. You ever hear the story, opportunity only knocks once? You ever hear that saying? Temptation bangs on the door all day long. Temptation can be relentless. Reject it. What is your weak spot for temptation? God knows it, and he's trying to strengthen you. The devil has been attempting to figure it out, and he might well have figured it out. And you know what he wants to do? Exploit it. Do you know it? Do you know where you're vulnerable? What schemes does the devil use against you time and time again? You know, we also use God's word to confront the lie that's in temptation. Jesus Christ did with it is written. He knew the truth. So the lies didn't attract him. One of the biggest lies you must confront is that God is is stern, boring, and restrictive. No, no, no. In thy presence is fullness of joy. Religion is stern, boring, and restrictive, but not God. We struggle with temptation because we really want to do it because we think it will be pleasurable, and why won't God let me do this? It's a lie. Living with God is what is pleasurable. Sin is always painful, although in the short term, the devil tries to make it look attractive. I remember I had a friend who became a heroin addict, and he got delivered. But the first time he used heroin, his, he, he described, now he's a Christian at this point, he said, first time I used it, I said, oh my God, I'm going to live here. This is the best thing that I ever have done. And, you know, I, I've never used heroin, but I, I'm sure that he was not lying about that. But did it stay that way? No, it didn't, did it? What seemed like this is where I want to live my life ended up with this man living on the streets of New York. Sin never delivers on his promises. Never. Okay, so we have to learn God's word so that we can recognize sin. Second, pray. Pray for help. God says he'll help. You can pray for it. Jesus Christ, before he was tempted by the devil, spent 40 days praying, didn't he? In, the, in what's commonly called the Lord's Prayer, Actually, it couldn't be the Lord's Prayer. The Lord could never have prayed that prayer. He couldn't have possibly prayed that prayer. Forgive me my sins? Jesus couldn't pray that. 
It was an example for us. I could pray that. He couldn't pray that. Jesus Christ in that prayer said, lead us not into temptation. When the disciples, just before he was arrested, he told them to watch and pray. Look at Luke twenty-two forty. And when he, Jesus, came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pray that you don't enter into temptation. You know, entering in the door. You might walk by the door. You don't have to go in. Prayer is very powerful in helping you overcome temptation. In fact, but unfortunately, most people toy with temptation rather than pray to avoid it. Do you want to escape temptation or do you just want to give in without getting caught? Other thing you need to do is be honest. Be honest about temptation. Be honest about the way the devil works you. Recognize it. If you care to look, there's probably a pattern in the way you get attempt- the way you get tempted. Have you ever heard of soup du jour? Okay. Soup du jour is chef's choice. It's what he makes that day, and it changes day by day. The opposite of soup du jour is dog food. The dog gets the same thing every day and still salivates. If you'll look at the temptations that have been beating you, it's not temptation du jour. It's dog food. He keeps serving up the same slop because we keep falling for it. We all have different temptations because different things appeal to us. Some of us are tempted to think certain things, some to do certain things. You need to understand the pattern of temptation that's being used against you so that you can preempt it. The devil has probably figured out what you're a sucker for, and that's what he's going to keep throwing your way. You probably know the things that tempt you, but you don't understand why you keep falling for them. Here's a couple of questions you can ask yourself. Where am I when I am most tempted? Are you most tempted at the computer, at work, at a bar, at home, after a few drinks? Recognize when you are most susceptible to temptation and be on your spiritual guard. Who are you with when you're tempted? Don't point at them. Some people are most tempted when they are alone. They're alone and their thoughts immediately wander to... uh, Anger, resentment, lust, all kinds of different things when they're alone. Some people are most tempted when they're away on business trips, or they're most tempted when they're with their friends, or they're most tempted at a bar after work. Ask God to show you your pattern. What triggers your temptation? Think about that. What's triggering it? Kids misbehaving at home, your bank statement, cable news, the magazine aisle at 7-Eleven, Certain types of music, too much wine. Temptations are often strongest when we are fatigued or lonely. That's when temptations are often, and the, the devil's going to try to exploit any weakness. Fourth step is, you've got to take God's escape route. He's going to have it there. Are you going to just look at it and, turn, and go the other way, or are you going to take it? Run from temptation. Not always literally, but sometimes literally. If David had simply turned away when he was on the rooftop, how things would have been different. What God is talking about here is don't toy with temptation. What you toy with, you're going to fall for. 
Don't flirt. Don't delude yourself into thinking you're tough enough to handle it. We run from temptation. We don't converse with it. That's what the devil did with Eve. And you notice, the devil came to Eve as a serpent, not as a monkey. Okay? Serpent doesn't have arms. Eve had to take the fruit and eat it. It didn't get shoved in her mouth by the devil. Sin's a choice. We have to choose it. So, that's a bit about temptation. You can overcome the tempter. But that's not his only hat, is it? Another hat is he's the deceiver. And that's another name that he had from, Ro- or from Revelation chapter 12. To deceive is to mislead with lies. When you are deceived, you are unaware of the lie that you have come to believe. Now, you might have been told that it's wrong to steal, but nobody's looking. I'm going to steal anyway. You know it's wrong, you do it anyway. That's one thing. That's not being deceived. Being deceived is you don't know the lie that you are believing. That's the thing about deception. That's what we want to look at. Ignorance of the scriptures makes people easy to deceive. Jesus was impossible to deceive because he knew the scriptures. And this form of attack, deceiving people, goes all the way back to the garden. It's what God says happened to Eve. We read about the temptation. You know what God's summary is? It's in 2 Corinthians 11.3. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts would be led astray or deceived from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The devil had skillfully manipulated Eve until she believed a lie. She was deceived. You know what Eve believed when she ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? She believed she would be just like God because that's what the devil had told her. She believed that. She was deceived. Didn't make her like God, did it? Made her dead. Now, how does the devil orchestrate deception in our lives? Well, God's word describes many ways that he comes at us. First up are an array of evil spirits whose job it is to spread deception. Look at 1 Timothy 4.1. The Spirit, referring to God, clearly says that in the latter times, some, referring to Christians, will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. These deceiving spirits take their lies and their doctrines and try to infiltrate the church. Many doctrines of devils have slipped quietly into Christianity over the centuries. The only way we can get at them is to go to the scriptures and go back to the source. Reboot and go back to God's word. The adversary knows the power of deception. It is much better than temptation alone. Because if he can get you to believe a lie, you are much more likely to continue damaging behavior. And one very clever way the devil confuses us, he confuses us to the point that we deceive ourselves. And, you know, you seldom lose arguments with yourself. People just know that we are great at rationalizing, aren't we? We can rationalize just about anything. The scriptures list several ways that we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves when we settle for learning God's word rather than actually doing something with it. Don't confuse knowledge with faith. And Christians are great. We come to a lot of teachings. We take notes. 
We, you know, we do all kinds of things, but we don't do the, we don't do the scriptures. We learn the scriptures, and you need to learn them, but then you need to t- do something with them. It says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. We deceive ourselves when we believe we are beyond sin in any area of our lives. Look what it says in 1 John 1.8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I don't like the sound of that. We are deceived when we don't believe that our associations affect us. It says in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Your mama was right. Don't you be hanging around with them hoodlums. We all, oh, no, mom, I won't do that. I remember my sister told my nephew. She goes, now, if we find out that all your friends are going out and getting drunk, we're going to assume you're getting drunk. And he goes, that's not fair. Yeah, well, this isn't a court. Because she knew, by experience, by having me as her older brother, that evil, bad company corrupts good morals. My sister, oh, this was, you know, you got to love her. She would wait up for me to come home. My parents, foolishly, they'd go to bed. Oh, Bob, he'll be fine. They go to bed. I come stumbling in, stoned or drunk at 3 a.m., and my sister, who was waiting up for me, God bless her, would then go into my parents and say, it's okay, Bob's home now. Yeah. But, you know, she did it innocently, and she loves me. And, oh, man, I could never be mad with her because she never did it out of spite. Okay, we are deceived when we don't control our mouth. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is, what is it? Oh, worthless. Is he religious? Yes, it's worthless. Deception is a powerful weapon to get you to live independent of God. It works so well because when you are deceived, you don't even recognize that you're living independent of God. The devil also makes sin look innocent and fun and never mentions the consequences. He disguises not only his true motives, but he disguises his very involvement in your life. At times, he will throw temptations at you in the first person. This is interesting. You remember the movie Star Wars? The original first Star Wars. These are not the droids we're looking for. You can move along. They can move along. And the devil throws temptations at you like that. He throws it at you in the first person. I don't want to go to fellowship. I don't want to read my Bible. Because if you think it's your idea, you're much more likely to act on it, right? Because I always have good ideas. Every idea I've ever had is good. And you all think the same way about your ideas. So the devil wants you to think that his temptations are really your idea. This is pretty slick. So how do we guard against deception? Well, you recognize counterfeit money by studying real money. You study real money, everything else is counterfeit. You don't have to memorize 10,000 different counterfeit $100 bills. You memorize what a real $100 bill looks and feels like. Everything that doesn't look and feel that way is counterfeit. What is our $100 bill? It's the scriptures. Hebrews brings into focus this a very powerful statement. We need to recognize from God's word. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, 
for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. How do we train our senses to recognize this? The scriptures. Okay, now let's look at how to resist the accuser. And this is another, this is another title that he has in uh, verse 10 of Revelation chapter 12. The word devil itself, remember I showed you the word devil is diabolos? And the word diabolos means the slanderer. And when you are an accuser, that is a legal term regarding bringing charges against someone. When the accusations are false, it's called slander. Now, the devil may accuse you, and he does, but Jesus Christ is your advocate. How would you like to have him as a defense attorney? Well, you do. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation. That means he is the the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. You do have a persistent accuser. The devil is a persistent slanderer and accuser. But we have an even more persistent advocate who refutes every lie of the slandering devil. The devil may accuse, but God doesn't accuse you. Jesus Christ doesn't accuse you. They're in your corner. Look what it says in Romans 8, 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. They are not going to bring any charges against you. The devil may be your accuser, but thankfully he is not your judge. He has no power to determine a verdict or to pronounce a sentence. All he can do is point and accuse. He can accuse and point, but he cannot do anything about your position in Christ. That is secure. And you know, sometimes the devil will lie about you. That's slander. Sometimes he'll actually tell the truth about you to try to accuse. Don't you remember that time when you did dot, dot, dot? Well, yeah, I did do dot, dot, dot. That's right, I did that. But you know what? That's forgiven in Christ. So that dot, dot, dot that I did, been acquitted. Got a full pardon from the creator of the universe. So sometimes the devil will slander you, meaning he'll lie about you. Sometimes he'll tell the truth about you, but it's an old truth that is no longer in force in your life. You don't carry around your sins. They've been forgiven. You've been cleansed. So don't fall. See, the devil, we fall for it sometimes. The devil will try to pummel us down by telling us accurate things about our past. But those things about our past have been forgiven in Christ. And that's what we want to think about. Now, most of the slandering efforts of the devil are spent on two places, God and yourself. He will slander God to you like he did with Eve, and he will slander you to yourself and try to get you to think that you're a no-count loser. The devil can do nothing about your position in Christ. Nothing. It's unassailable. You're a son or daughter of God, period. It cannot be changed. But he can make you weak in that calling. He can diminish your stand on God's word. He can make you powerless if he can deceive you into believing 
his lies that accuse you of being of little consequence, of no value to God. Every time we consider ourselves less than what God says in his word, we have fallen prey to the accuser. When you are hit with thoughts of failure, these ideas are tossed at you by the adversary. Recognize them. Reject them. Believers who are defeated and in bondage all have one thing in common. They don't know who they are in Christ. Don't let the accuser define you. You are not the sum total of your mistakes, as the devil would have you believe. You are also, by the way, not the sum total of all the good things you've done. What you are and what your identity is, the sum total of your perfect redemption in Christ Jesus. That's who you are, and that's a lot better than even all the good I've done. As I said, we have a persistent adversary. We have an even more persistent Savior. The devil will try to freeze you in your tracks and beat you down with one paralyzing accusation after another. Who do you think you are to teach God's word? Oh, yeah, now, oh, you've been a Christian for six months, and now you're all that, huh? Well, yeah, I am, as a matter of fact. And I was all that two minutes after I became a Christian. Don't believe anything the devil says about you. It's all lies. Believe what God says about you. You have to know what he says about you. For that, we go back to God's word. So now, I've been talking about sin. God's word talks about sin. What are we supposed to do with sin? What do we do about it? We know what it is. We miss the mark. What happens when we miss the mark? What do we do then? Let's see what we do. Sin is no longer our master, but at times, hey, let's face it, we get hooked. We screw up. What about those times that we miss and fall short? I don't win every battle. I'm not batting a thousand, but I'm doing a lot better than I used to do. So what about sin? Now, this is not a teaching on the cross, okay? The cross is what God did about sin. I want to know what you're going to do in response to what God did. God says Jesus Christ carried all your sins. You know what that means? You don't, okay? Don't carry them anymore. How do we respond to what God has done? The first way you respond to it is to make Jesus your Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. That got you forgiveness of sins. You know what that did? When you became a Christian, that took care of sin on an eternal basis. We now have to learn how to respond to sin once we are born again. The reason is, even though sin has been taken care of on an eternal basis, I am not yet living in eternity. I'm living here on earth. And we still sin at times. No newsflash there. From an eternal perspective, the sin problem has been solved for all those who have chosen to lean on Christ. But what about today? I'm not living in the gathering together yet. I'm not living in heaven. I'm not standing by Christ's side right now. What about now? God warns us about sin the simple reason that it's damaging. Why do I warn my granddaughter about sticking her finger in electrical outlets? Because sticking your finger in electrical outlets is damaging to humans. And I don't want my granddaughter to be damaged. God is the same way. Sometimes the damage is obvious, like stealing or murder. Sometimes it's not so obvious. Sometimes the damage is living your life thinking 
you're useless, thinking that you're a failure. God didn't call failures. We need to understand what we're going to do about this. So, first I want to look at what, what are you not going to do with sin? Here's what I don't want you to do. First of all, don't deny it. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And, you know, you can't really conceal anything from God anyway, but what happens is we refuse to acknowledge our sin. God, we've looked at this already. If anyone says he has no sin, he deceives himself. This verse is really about denying that something that God says is sin is sin. This is usually called rationalization. So we don't want to deny our sin. We don't want to rationalize it away. The other thing, the second thing we don't want to do with sin is, this is important, don't treat your sin differently than God treats it. Don't treat your sin differently than God treats it. This is important to know. And you know what God does with sin? You know what God considers about sin? He considers it to be something that was covered in Christ. God considers sin something to be forgiven. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 7. In verse 8 it says, Paul had written 1 Corinthians. Okay, this is 2 Corinthians. He wrote 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, God had Paul lay out point after point where the Corinthian church had missed the mark. Okay? Point after point. And they felt bad about this. Can you imagine getting the letter of 1 Corinthians? Hey, everybody, come here. We got a letter from Paul. And then you start reading it. So Paul wrote, God had Paul write 2 Corinthians. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. They were caused sorrow by God's word. Yeah, that's interesting. Though I did regret it, because Paul doesn't want people to be sorry. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. You mean it can be God's will at some point that you're sorry in your life? That's what it's saying. So that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation or deliverance, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Let me explain these two. Sorrow of this world, a sorrow according to the will of God. Godly sorrow is a recognition that we've missed the mark. Okay, I screwed up. I've sinned. I've walked away from God's word. When we recognize that we have sinned, we feel bad. That's by design. Just like God designed your physical body to be able to perceive physical pain, right? That's a God design. If you couldn't perceive physical pain, you would have all been dead by now. So God designed the physical body to perceive pain so that you knew to change something or address something. Godly sorrow is an emotional pain, so to speak, so that you recognize there is something to be addressed here. There is something to be addressed here. And when we recognize that, we repent, and that leads to deliverance. Now, that's what God wants to have happen. The devil has a slightly different agenda for your life. And by slightly different, I mean polar opposite. What the devil wants you to do 
is wallow in your sin. Wallow in your failure. Be overwhelmed with the idea that you screwed up. And then allow this failure to define you. It's my, you all had new name tags? Now I'm going to have to have new ones. You know, I'm a loser. That's what the devil wants. He doesn't want you to have Nick on your name tag. He wants loser on your name tag. Nope. I like Danny on that name tag much better. The devil wears many hats. He is the tempter. He's enticing you to do evil. And as soon as, oh, come on, you can do that. That's not so bad. Let's do this. It's going to be fun. And then as soon as you do it, he takes on a different hat, the accuser. You lowlife, how could you possibly do such a thing? You call yourself a Christian. He just just puts on a different hat. Take a look at Romans 8.1. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now think about that. There's no condemnation for those who who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus? Yes, you are. Have you ever felt condemned? Oh, yeah, I have. Wait a second. What does that verse mean? There's no condemnation from God. He's not condemning you. Is there condemnation? You bet. The world will condemn you. The devil will condemn you. The media will condemn you. God won't condemn you. He's the only one that matters. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. There's plenty of condemnation in the world today. Condemnation feeling condemned and miserable and a failure, that is the result of not treating your sin the way God does. God treats your sin as something to be forgiven and no longer remembered. Condemnation, this is something to remember, condemnation is the counterfeit of godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a recognition when you fall short of his word and it always produces a change. Condemnation just beats you into the earth and gives you that new name tag of loser. And it's slick. Condemnation occurs in the life of a Christian man or woman because we correctly take God's view of sin as something wrong, but we don't take God's correct view of forgiveness and reconciliation. It's a slick counterfeit. It looks like it's half-based on God's word, just like the devil always half-bases things. The devil's accusations and slander will produce the sorrow of this world, causing you to give up. Godly sorrow is based on a true recognition of our sin, but also of our position as a son or daughter of God. Godly sorrow never touches your identity. Godly sorrow never touches who you are. condemnation always attacks who you are, always attacks your identity. Do you feel guilty, worthless, inept, or stupid? Do you feel doomed to failure, trapped in an endless loop of sin? That is the sorrow of this world. That is condemnation, and that is wrong. We need to understand how to deal with sin God's way or otherwise we are going to attempt to conceal it, deny it, or wallow in it. None of which are going to be helpful. First John tells us what we do with sin. It's pretty easy. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If you are clean, are you dirty? No. You believe what God says about sin. How about believing what God says about forgiveness and cleansing? When we walk in darkness, we do not have fellowship with God. When we confess our sins and receive God's forgiveness and cleansing, immediately we are restored to fellowship with him. The world may hold you accountable, but God has received you because of Christ Jesus. So when it comes to sin, we don't want to conceal it, deny it, or wallow in it. What we want to do is confess it and then receive God's forgiveness and enjoy walking in fellowship with him. Now finally, when it comes to resisting the devil, I want you to understand that you have everything that you need in Christ. Look what it says in Colossians 2.10. And in him you have been made complete. If you are complete, are you lacking anything? No. You are complete, and he is the head of all rule and power. So, we have one more session of the class left. That last session, we're going to kind of put together what we've learned about the renewed mind, about resisting the devil, submitting to God, and we're going to learn how to walk in deliverance. And I'm going to help you approach God according to his word so that in your life you can see the deliverance that you need. And our next session, by the way, is not going to be on Thursday. It is going to be next Tuesday, okay? Tuesday, Tuesday. So see you Tuesday at 7 p.m. I'm going to close this in prayer, okay? Father God, in the name of Jesus Christ, thank you for this night, and thank you for every man and woman here, as well as those who are watching in on the stream. Pray, God, that we can continue to put your truth on in our lives and our hearts, and we can continue to see your victory in our lives. I bless each and every person here, God. I ask you that we can leave here as ambassadors for Christ. And I pray, God, that you will open doors for us to bless others. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You guys are the best.